Today's episode is brought to you by Khadija Queen's Anodyne, a collection of poems at once formally dynamic and searingly personal that asks us to recognize the echoes of history that litter the landscape of our bodies as we navigate a complex terrain of survival and longing. Writes Alex Lemon, Khadija Queen's poems are fire and sacred song. This is writing that makes the hardship of being alive transcendent. I recommend this book, Ilya Kaminsky says, to anyone who ever had a child or a parent, who ever had a body or loved, to anyone who has ever been sick or tried to sleep a good night's sleep and failed and tried again. Anodyne is out now from Tin House. Today's episode with Jeannie Vanasco has been long anticipated on my part. In fact, I first reached out to Jeannie in April of 2019 about coming on the show. I was excited then to discover that she was not only already a big fan of Between the Covers, but that she used many of the episodes in her creative nonfiction classes at Towson University. In the email that goes out to listener supporters, I'll highlight the episodes that she teaches that I think are most in conversation with today's episode. I suspect you'll also find that today's episode is very much in dialogue with last week's conversation between Basi Ikbi and Melissa Phoebos, where they look at how to create the right form to write the most difficult parts of one's life story. Jeannie's book doesn't only create its own entirely unique form, but the act of creating that form and the questions that came up around finding that form are itself part of the book's story. Not only is the act of writing the book part of its topic, but her position as teacher of creative nonfiction, of helping other writers find the right forms and the right language for their stories, is also part of this book. And I mention this now because unusually we're going to offer two additions to the bonus audio this week. The first is Jeannie Vanasco focusing on the opening paragraphs of a book she loves, Rebecca Godfrey's The Torn Skirt, and talking about how Rebecca employs the figures of speech in her opening. The second is an hour-long video, a craft talk that she gave this summer at the Tin House Writers Workshop called How to Write Memorable Lines. The former will be for the subscribers to the bonus audio, but the latter we're going to make available to all supporters, particularly as a welcome and thank you, because we have so many new listener supporters this month. The first two weeks of this fall campaign, to get between the covers on solid footing heading into 2021, and my new life, where I'll hopefully be doing this as my primary occupation, have been so wonderfully encouraging. We're almost two-thirds of the way to my end-of-the-year goal in just two weeks. And it is largely thanks to you, sharing what the show means to you with your friends and followers. Historically, somewhere between 1% and 2% of listeners are listener supporters, and I'm aiming to get that above 2% to between 2 and 3% by New Year's. The entry level to joining an active community of supporters on Patreon is just $1 an episode, which is a mere $24 a year. Head over to patreon.com slash between the covers 
to check out Jeannie Vanasco's audio and the video of her craft talk, among many other potential supporter benefits. Again, this can all be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program with Jeannie Vanasco. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Jeannie Vanasco. Vanasco has a BA in creative writing with an emphasis in both poetry and fiction from Northwestern University, an MFA in poetry from NYU, and an MFA in creative nonfiction from Hunter College. Vanasco is a professor of English teaching creative nonfiction at Towson University outside of Baltimore and her writing has appeared everywhere from The Believer and The New York Times to The New Yorker and The Times Literary Supplement. Her debut memoir from Tin House Books, The Glass Eye, was praised by The New York Times Book Review as a hypnotic, haunting exploration of perception, memory, and the complexities of grief. The Glass Eye was an indie next pick, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers pick, and was selected by Poets and Writers as one of the five best literary nonfiction debuts of 2017. Jeannie Vanasco joins me today on Between the Covers to talk about her second book, her second memoir, and her second book with Tin House called Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl. Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl was not only a New York Times editor's choice, a Paris Review staff pick, and a Rumpus book club pick. It was also named a Best Book of the Year by everyone from Time Magazine to Esquire, from Book Riot to Amazon, from Kirkus to the Feminist Book Club, among many others. Adrian Westenfeld for Esquire says, In this singular gutting memoir, perhaps the most important book of the season, Vanasco interviews her own rapist. Fourteen years later, Vanasco and the high school friend who raped her struggle together through the landmines of a harrowing conversation about consent, betrayal, and rehabilitation. This book lives masterfully in the messy, liminal space between punishment and forgiveness, asking us to consider the path forward from the unthinkable. Kelsey O'Rourke for Literati Bookstore adds, We are witness to Vanasco thinking through her own internalized misogyny, the ways both minute and large in which rape culture 
has persuaded and distorted the thinking of both rapist and victim, a conversation between two experiences of an event that adds such a deep level of nuance to this conversation that nearly every page of my copy is dog-eared. Carmen Maria Machado says, It's hard to overstate the importance of this gorgeous, harrowing, heartbreaking book. Melissa Phoebos adds, I wish everyone in this country would read it. And finally, Sofia Shalmayev calls Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl a literary feminist miracle. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jeannie Venasco. Thank you for having me, David. So after my last interview with Carmen Maria Machado, I drove her to her hotel, and while we were driving, I mentioned some of the people who I had upcoming plans to interview. And when I mentioned your name, her eyes lit up, she became very animated, and the rest of our drive was Carmen talking about how she felt her book in the dream house and your book were in conversation, how they were kindred projects. And she could have said this because they were both about abuse. She could have said this because they both expand the scope in terms of the conversation. But, but what she spoke about with me was not the similarities in subject, but rather what they shared formally, the ways you both approach the topic as writers. More specifically, she talked about how in both books, we are witnessing the mind of the writer as the writer constructs the book. In other words, the construction of the book and the process of its construction, how to put these experiences into language, into words, into story, is also in some way its subject. This also to me seems true about your first book, The Glass Eye. So I'd be interested in hearing if Carmen's sentiments ring true for you? And if so, if you could talk about why creating a meta-narrative, why revealing the book Scaffolding was attractive for this project? Um, well, that's great to hear. Uh, it's, so I'm a huge fan of Carmen's writing, and I've actually I've taught her book, and I'll be teaching it again. And yeah, it's it's interesting to me when writers talk about books, because so often we're not necessarily interested in the subject matter. I mean, I would read a book about anything. Like I would read a book about like lit, like the history of Lint if it were written by someone who really cares about voice, cares about form. And yeah, I mean, I think of, I definitely think of my writing as engaging with like meta narratives, though I don't necessarily think of it as being I mean, it. You, one could say like all writing is experimental and, but I don't think of my writing as being as edgy as some people have said. I mean, I, I like that, um, that some people think I'm doing something very different, but for me in creative nonfiction, it seems to me that commenting on the writing of the book, that doesn't seem that wild to me because usually in nonfiction, we're not, unless we're doing something really experimental as authors, we're usually not trying to make the reader forget that we, the writer exist. So that frame breaking is actually, I think a form of sincerity, a way of building intimacy between writer and reader, but also, and it's something I love about in the dream house is, um, you get the sense that it's 
that there's a guiding intelligence, that there's this shifting and developing understanding of the events. And it's almost as if you feel like you've, you're eavesdropping in on the person's thinking. And that's what I love where it's not so much a dear reader. It's more of a, someone talking to themselves and saying things that might, they might otherwise be afraid of telling another person. And so for me, that's the sort of writing I love where it just seems like there, there aren't any, there aren't any barriers. There's an openness. Um, but certainly, yeah, the form breaking, I, I just, I like to think about how, how much I can fracture a text and have it still make sense. That's, a, that's interesting to me. I like that you say that it's about intimacy because I think the first thing people think of both with the word experimental, but also with meta is that you're creating distance and particularly distance from a character that there's all these interfering things between the uh, reader and the experience of what they're reading about because of the meta aspect. But it does feel like, strangely, that you revealing the artifice of creating art is getting us closer and connecting us more. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that was, I saw somebody, I mean, I know, like, as a writer, I should stay away from from Goodreads. Uh, but at first it was hard to resist early on seeing, you know, I was curious as to what people would say. And I thought that one review was starting out that I was like, oh no, this is someone who's going to tear apart, tear apart the book. But it was about how it wasn't so much a book as about the writing of a book, but it ended up being a very positive review, which, which was nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I like to think about how, just how close can I get to the voice that's in my head? I will say I was really nervous about releasing this book, not because of the subject matter so much. I mean, sure, like I, there was that, there was nervousness associated with that, but mostly I was, I was feeling really insecure about the quality of the writing because it is so plain. And I kept telling myself as I was working on it, like, okay, I'll go back and revise. I'll, I'll eventually go back and, and fix it. And then part of, I think, the intimacy is in that. I mean, it's not as if it's not revised and it's not as if I didn't take care with the prose. But I, I think in nonfiction, there's a risk if the prose is so lyrical and so beautiful, sometimes there's the risk of losing the reader's trust. I mean, I think there are some writers who achieve this masterfully. Um, Sophia Shalmiev, uh, Mother Winter. I mean, talk about gorgeous, gorgeous prose. But never once was I thinking, oh, is she just letting the acoustics of a line um, influence her shaping of the... Fa I never had that feeling with her writing. And I think that's because she maintains this beautiful momentum. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think... I was nervous about releasing this book because of the subject matter, but more so I really was, I was afraid of that. The writing was so plain, uh, that I don't know that I, I just, yeah. I was preparing myself for, for that criticism. Well, I, I, I suspect I'm going to return to this statement in light of a couple things that I'm going to bring up later in the conversation about, a whole bunch of different things that I'm going to bring up, but I want to, I want to take this 
fear that you have and sort of loop it into this question of meta narratives. Uh, because one of the ways I see your books is kindred books, your, your and Carmen books that relates to both meta structures and also to this anxiety you have about the book coming out is around the question of failure. Carmen and I, I talked a lot about how, how her book creates this sense of uncertainty and hesitation at the beginning. So it opens with this gauntlet of tons of epigraphs and then this description of why she hates prologues. And then after her talking about why she hates prologues, there's a prologue. And given that the book is explicitly about writing into the absence of an archive of writing about queer partner abuse, each of the chapters which adopts and then discards another genre or another metaphor can sort of be seen as a failure to capture what is going on for her. So she tries on a genre and she tries on a metaphor and each individual chapter doesn't in, in and of itself capture in language what she wants. But it, but the book as a whole, I think, is an utter success. And your book engages with failure on many different levels. And I hadn't thought about this question about this anxiety you had about the plainness versus the, um, how lyrical or how polished it is, but I think this would fit in. Um, and I kind of want to touch on various levels in which your book engages with failure. But when I, but the first one that comes to mind when I encounter the opening sentence of part one, the opening sentence of part one is I already predict failure. And, and the first place I go with that is the cultural and political level out in the world for survivors of rape, that only 0.7% of rapes or attempted rapes result in felony conviction, where it often seems like the woman is on trial more than the accused. And when hundreds of thousands of rape kits across the country go untested, the absence of evidence beyond testimony sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So starting with I already predict failure seems to me like an imminently reasonable position to start from, but I didn't know if that's where you were starting. Is that is that one of the valences that is informing that opening sentence of the book? That's interesting. Oh, you asked the best questions. Um I I think with predicting failure I mean, there were a lot of ways in which I thought the book would fail. I mean, first of all, I thought he wouldn't reply or he would deny what happened. Or, I mean, I think that was on my mind when I was thinking about failure. And as I was writing the book, I made this rule for myself that I wouldn't go back and revise what I'd already written, I would just keep moving forward. And that did sort of encourage me to work more slowly to, um, but also strangely, this doesn't quite get at your question, but I'll, I'll circle back to it. But strangely, by making this rule of not revising as I go, it made me slow down and look at the sentence I'd just written and then think, okay, how am I going to move, use what's there and move to the next one and the next one. And then oddly, I wrote the book a lot it helped me write the book more quickly because I wrote it in about eight months, which is very unusual for me to write that quickly. Um, but failure initially was this fear that he would deny everything. So it was 
more so thinking back to that idea of, yes, often rape survivors aren't believed. Um, but I think I often, I don't know, I, I don't always have... I mean, you have to have a certain amount of self-confidence in order to write a book to think like, okay, I can, I can do this. Um, but I, I definitely was afraid that it would fall apart at any point because at, at any point, even when he, like when I would think back to predicting failure, even when he said he agreed to talk with me, um, Mark, that he would participate in these recorded interviews and answer my questions to the best of his knowledge. I still thought, okay, he could withdraw consent at any time. And then the book falls apart because would I still honor that? Um, what I, if he says he no longer wants to do it, then what happens? Well, it'd become a different book. I would, I suppose, follow his, I would have followed his wishes, but I was definitely afraid while working on it that at some point he may decide, hey, let's stop. This could really ruin my life. Just to spend one more minute on um, failure as the most likely outcome for someone who's the victim of sexual assault or rape in terms of getting uh, true accountability or reckoning in the United States. Um in your conversation with Sophia Shalmayev, you you talk about something that I thought was interesting, which is Lord Hale's instructions, which were instructions given up until the 1980s and sometimes the 1990s, depending on states, to juries, uh, who who were juries for um, uh, people accused of of rape. Could you tell us a little bit about what captured you about that and what what the Lord Hale's instructions were? Yeah, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, I can't remember the precise wording, but basically it was um, the inst it was an instruction to juries before a trial, and it, and in no other criminal trial was this was a jury told that the um, that the woman that the individual making an accusation that they might be lying. But when it came to cases of sexual assault, juries were told that in the cases of rape, it's a claim that's easy to make and difficult to prove. And so the jury should be very cautious when listening to almost always it's a woman listening to the woman's testimony. And that was just so interesting to me just because you don't do we don't in this country, we didn't do that for any other criminal trial to say, hey, the person making the allegation could be lying. Um, so that was I mean, that that was very interesting to me when I when I learned about that. Well, I want to take those instructions or at least have those instructions inform the way you employ the phenomenon of unreliability in the book, because obviously that's that is a huge burden that someone who comes forth with um, having been raped or sexually assaulted has to contend with is even in the in the instructions given to the jury to begin the trial. It's like the assumption is enough of a possibility that the testimony is unreliable, that they need to warn the jury. Um, because much like Carmen's book, converting all of these failures into a success, instead of you arguing for why you should be believed to to your reader, instead of saying, these are all the reasons why I should be believed. You foreground all the ways 
you won't be believed or you typically wouldn't be believed. So we learn pretty early in the book that you, you were drunk and were passed out, that you were half awake. And if people have read The Glass Eye, they know you have bipolar disorder. And here in your second book, you foreground that you've been hospitalized many times for psychosis. You were also raped at a different time by another man and sexually assaulted by a teacher, something that is often used against the victim as if they're doing something to encourage this. And I think you even said in one interview that you've had an interviewer ask you, is that true? As who interviewer yes. who said to you, what have you who been doing in your life? Interviewer, yeah, so a woman and she asked me, why do you think you got sexually assaulted as much as you did? And yeah. it was one of the first interviews I did. And uh, yeah, I was not expecting that, that question. Yeah. Well, you, so you, we learn all these things about you and you also have trouble with self-reporting. For instance, you have longstanding nightmares and the nightmares increased when a sexual predator became the president of the United States. Um, and when you decided to reach out to Mark after 14 years to see if he'd be in the project, but your husband had to remind you that contrary to your own self narrative, that you'd been actually having nightmares about Mark previous to starting this project and previous to Trump, even though you didn't see it that way uh, initially. Um, but the amazing thing that happens with this to connect this to this accumulation of quote unquote failures or this accumulation of quote unquote unreliable uh, factoids is that you present all of them and it makes you this incredibly reliable narrator to me. Like you're, it feels like this act is what's building the trust. You're, you're, and also the intimacy. So, and it's also working on multiple levels because you're, you're engaging with sort of the political aspect of the impossible position you're in. Um, so I was, guess I wanted you to talk a little bit about the building of you as character on the page in this way um, of taking the liability and making it the way you connect to us. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking through all the reasons, right. Why someone wouldn't, why a reader wouldn't believe me. And I think it's part of the reason of, of laying that groundwork certainly is building trust between me and the reader, but also yeah, I felt that if if I could, I thought that if I could get Mark on the record, right, that I, I felt very conflicted about that. I think I, it was in some ways it's me expressing, justifying why I'm going to reach out to him. Like there are all of these reasons why I won't be believed. But if I can get the perpetrator on the record that and to agree to recorded interviews, then how can anyone dispute what happened to me if he admits it. So I think part of it was also thinking about why a reader would be angry that I would give him a voice at all. And I know, or I know there are some people, right. Who I certainly did get some hate mail, um, about this, about giving him, uh, giving Mark a voice, giving a perpetrator a voice. But I felt like I, because there were all of these, uh, all of these things working against me in terms of my reliability, the fact that 
you know, anyone who's read The Glass Eye or I think the New York Times had put, I kind of, I hated the, the title of it, but this modern love piece I wrote, my platonic romance in the psych ward. So if somebody like Googled me, they immediately also, even if they hadn't read The Glass Eye, they would know about my history with bipolar and with psychosis. So I, I really... I think I listed all of those things because it's also a lot of people I know, a lot of women I know haven't reported their attacks because it's a common response. Like you think about all the reasons why someone will think you're lying. And so certainly laying out all of those reasons was important in terms of building intimacy between me and the reader and building trust, but also serving as a sort of justification for why I think I'm going to reach out to him and talk to him because it just, that is what made felt it wasn't reaching out to him. That scared me actually. Like I wasn't that worried about talking to him. It was more so I was worried about how it would be received my talking to him. Mm -hmm. Well, could we hear um, a section near the beginning called there are gaps? Sure. Um, let's see. There are gaps. I already predict failure. I'm afraid he'll say no, or even worse, ignore me. But why wouldn't he agree to speak with me? He owes me that much. I could disguise his identity, change his name. Combing a naming dictionary for some rough translation of friend, I first land on Aldwin, old friend. I picture a knight, an 11th century Norman invader, a sorcerer in a fantasy novel, a president of a Martha's Vineyard men's club, a child of artfully tattooed parents. Between 1880 and 2016, the Social Security Administration recorded only 129 babies named Aldwin. My former friend's pseudonym should be common, modern, unassuming. I want readers to know someone with the same name. Phil means friend, but he's not the Phil type. Phil orders everybody drinks. Phil shakes your hand, says, call me Phil. Phil's too casual, too laid back. My former friend may have slacked from one day into the next, but he wavered between anxious and depressed. Philip then? Philip contains friend, friend of horses but I doubt he ever touched a horse. He preferred the indoors, rarely strained from couch, desk, and bed. His white skin burned easily. Forget name origins. What about the origins of words that are also names, like Nick? Some of Nick's obsolete meanings, reckoning or account, slang for the vagina. But I dated a Nick, in college, briefly, between boyfriends. I'd prefer that memories of Nick, him telling me, I could tell you weren't very cultured when I met you, and how have you not heard of broken social scene, and I don't understand why you won't sleep with me if you like me, not influence this project, though I like the sound of Nick. So I want a monosyllabic word that works as a name and contains a K. Mark, maybe? Its main definition, a boundary. And that's what this is about, boundaries. Perfect. Mark, then. Why should I protect Mark? 
I enter his work address in Google Street View. Instead of his pale yellow office building on an industrial one-way street, I aim my view at the clouds and telephone wires. The wires don't line up precisely. There are gaps of just sky. Gaps between communication. I should stop searching for metaphors. Mark and I stopped speaking to one another in college. He was in Ohio studying engineering. I was in Illinois majoring in journalism. He dropped out shortly after we last spoke, which is not to say I'm the reason or that what happened between us is the reason, but I hope it's the reason or rather what he did to me during winter break of our sophomore year is, I hope, the reason. I can't forget, I was passed out. Mark now manages a camera shop. I recently found an online forum where he answers questions about cameras. Someone asked if a blur in a photo can be good and Mark replied, if the intent is to give an abstract rendering for some artistic reason, then it's acceptable. When no such intent exists, it's merely bad technique that has caused something that should be sharp to blur. If he could photograph that night, would he blur it? Where would he blur it? My memory is blurry. There are gaps. But I know what he did, and he does too. The next day, or maybe a few days later, he apologized. I should not have done that to you. I am so sorry. It was not okay. Can you ever forgive me? I said I could. I said I would. I told him to read J.D. Salinger's Franny and Zoe, my favorite novel back then. I cringe at the memory. He read it and told me it reminded him of us. But no one in the book carries his drunk friend into a basement, takes off her clothes while she's passed out, fingers her, masturbates over her while she cries, and tells her, it's just a dream. I'm so glad you liked the book, is what I said. A year later, Mark dropped out of college. He moved back home, tried therapy, became a mechanic. At least this is what his dad told my mom. By then, our friendship had ended, though I doubt his parents and siblings knew why. Friends grow apart is probably what they thought. As with many things after my dad died, I never told my mom. Mark, according to LinkedIn, returned to college, earned a bachelor's in interdisciplinary studies, and, several years later, a master's in civil engineering. When we were friends, I told him, someday you'll become a famous engineer. You'll discover a formula so complicated that high school students will write it on their wrists before exams. Every time I think about him, I feel pissed off and sad. I understand now why nostalgia for hundreds of years was considered a chronic mental illness. I want to hate him, but I can't. I've been listening to Jeannie Vanaska read from things we didn't talk about when I was a girl. We do get, and you mentioned the big fear of failure on the political level, which is giving a platform to someone who raped you, giving him any space or on his, on somewhat on his terms and someone not on his terms. But there's also all these small things like you quickly forgiving him, um, that, you know, cringeworthy scene with Franny and Zoe, um, you not hating him, which none of them fall into the sort of broadest cultural narrative of how to speak about 
um, this politically, let's say, right? Like I'm not talking as a writer or an artist or as an individual human being, but this is these anxieties around, am I being a good feminist or how will feminists other than me um, respond? Um, how, how big of an anxiety was it? How did you um, engage with it as you wrote? Um, I mean, you, I'm guessing, I mean, I'm guessing you must've been excited, maybe relieved that, you know, Melissa Phoebos, Alyssa Washuda, Sophia Shalmiev, Carmen Maria Machado, all of these outspoken writers who engage with similar questions are all champions of the book, but you couldn't have known that. I, yeah, I was terrified when I would ask, you know, it's, I hate, I, I am someone who always, I would there were times like I, I chose not to apply for certain things because they require letters of recommendation. So I'm not good at, at asking for things like that. So when I, when I reached out to some writers to ask if they'd be willing to blurb the book, I think I prefaced it with, you know, telling them what it was about, no hard feelings if they felt uncomfortable doing so, you know, and I, I was really terrified that everyone would come back and say like, how could you do this? This is a huge betrayal to everything that feminists or, you know, not everything, but this is a huge betrayal to um, the feminist movement. And it was a relief that for the most part, people were really supportive, uh, right? And writers whose work, you know, I love and admire and, and teach. Um, that was, that was exciting for me, but I, I assumed I would get some pushback and, you know, and it, I have, it's strange, like after the pandemic started, I've received some hate mail, which is like a <laughs> unique type of person. <laughs> like, I was like, who, like, we're in a global pandemic. There's so much going on. Like, what even is the thought process there? Like, hmm, this is a really stressful time for everyone. Like, I know I'll reach out to this, this rape survivor about her book and tell her how terrible I think she is and that she just did this for money. Um, but for the most part, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. But, you know, as as a writer, sometimes the things that get stuck in your head are the, the negative ones. Right. Um, but while I was working on the book, certainly, I mean, this question of am I like, am I being a good feminist, which I know is like a really reductive question, but it's interesting that I, I think I even asked, I talk with Mark about that question. And, uh, and I, I mean, I talked with a lot of my female friends about it. Um, but yeah, while I was working on it, my big fear was that, I, I don't know, that I would be betraying a feminist cause, or I would be letting down, you know, my students in some way, or, um, so that, I mean, it's, it scared me. Um, so it was a huge relief when, when praise came in from writers whose work I admire. Yeah. Well, I want to return to the blurb that I read it in the introduction by Adrian Westerfeld that says, your book lives masterfully in the messy liminal space, because it feels like it is the messiness or, or perhaps not messiness, but the instability and volatility that it holds us in where words like rape and consent and victim and perpetrator suddenly become more unstable. It is that aspect of the book that for me gave it 
its power. And the reading experience because of this is both super compelling and also at the same time, it's holding us in an uneasiness. Um, and I wanted to bring up the uneasiness of the reading experience, particularly around Mark. For instance, you're asking consent from your rapist to participate in the project. So that's one way you take this word consent and, and, and make it strange to us and uncomfortable. And it feels like you're very self-aware of the surreality of doing that. I'm also not sure you could have planned for or dreamed up a more effective character profile of a rapist that would hold us more in the messy liminal space that would create more uneasiness than the way Mark ended up being. Like it would have been easier, I think, if he'd been monstrous when you'd reached out or super defensive or passive aggressive or aggressive or if he tried to gaslight you or if he were in full-on denial or he just said no. Any of those would have sort of confirmed my comfort with the binary uh, victim-perpetrator narrative. But his reactions are of an entirely different sort. Um, and later in, the, um, later in the conversation, I want to go into what true accountability would look like and what your thoughts are on restorative justice are and punishment. But I want to just put those questions aside for now and talk about this other aspect of Mark. He not only agrees to participate, he agrees to be recorded. He signs a waiver without needing to read your book. Uh, he tells you that you shouldn't go easy on him because he doesn't deserve it. He's willing to use the word rape to describe what happened when you're still feeling uncertain about whether to use the word. And when you meet up with him again after 14 years, it is also clear that your life seems to have a trajectory, whereas his seems to have sort of stalled out. Um, he's stuck, rather self-isolated, without a great sense of a future. Um, and this puts the reader, at least it puts this reader in a weird place of, of sometimes against my own desire feeling sympathy for Mark of experiencing maybe as a first response in some of these interactions, the way he cares for you or cares about what happened that he did. So I wanted you to talk about Mark as character in this book and also whether his responses in this regard presented writer challenges for you on how to write it. Like whether something about the encounter and him having all of these qualities, how much of that was, I mean, you knew him, but how much of that was anticipated and how much of it was, okay, how am I going to adjust my project around what he says to accommodate for this response from Mark, which in, in certain regards is um, he's game to, to participate and, um, and own up at least in a recording with you. And then in this book that, um, he did what he did and name it with the legal vocabulary that would describe it. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll, and I'll answer your question, but it got me thinking about how, uh, some, some 
emails I've received from readers, uh, a couple of people asking me why I didn't prioritize writing about the friend who raped me in my 20s. And ultimately, the project comes down to language. And that's why it was actually very strange to say validating when Mark was willing to use the word rape. Um, but because for the situation, like the encounter I had with Mark, I, I felt a lot of insecurity around using that word because he he used his fingers. And it was a big realization for me to think about how I had been prioritizing his body and thinking about which part he used and not my body, which part he violated. And it seems so obvious to me now when like I, I state it, but for a long time, I, I couldn't conceptualize it in those terms. And Mark telling me when I, I confronted him with the definition and him saying, well, if that's, you know, that's the word, then, you know, that's what it is. I, I wasn't, to answer your question, I wasn't so surprised by the way he responded. I mean, I, it was hard. We hadn't talked for 14 years. So I still had this concept of him as not so much like what he did that night. Um, I didn't necessarily think of him as like a rapist. I ultimately thought of him as this person who'd been one of my best friends. And he was, he was someone who was really there for me after my dad died. We had, we had this incredibly close relationship where, you know, we could sit in silence with one another and it not be uncomfortable. I mean, I just, I really trusted him. And so that's why I think, I mean, any rape is a betrayal, but this really felt like I, I just, it seemed so out of character for him. Like the way he reacted in the book, that all seemed within his character or the mark I knew. It was what he did that night that to me was so incredibly out of character. Uh, and that was hard for me to reconcile. And I think for him, he thought it was out of character for him. He never, he I mean, he told me he never thought that was something he was he was capable of. And it's partly why I think the, you know, it was, I felt important to pursue this book in the way that I did, because often when we see portrayals of rapists, particularly in, in film and TV, they do tend to be really monstrous. And I think the longer we go on seeing rapists as monsters, the harder it will be to hold like the quote, seemingly nice guys accountable. And it seems like a large I don't want to say it's not that um, I'm not making the argument that most men are rapists, but most rapists tend to be men. And it makes it hard to see the seemingly nice guys as capable of doing something like this or of holding them accountable. Um, so for me, the, the way in which Mark reacted and his openness, his willingness to participate if anything, I felt I did feel guilty as the book progressed because there was a certain point where I think he thought we were becoming friends again. And there was a point at which there was I almost hoped it could happen. But I it's just, it's I mean, it, it just felt impossible. But I think he really thought we might carry on this relationship, this friendship and I did feel like I was betraying him. And I had these conversations with my partner, Chris, about it. And he's like, no, you were open with him. You were upfront that this is what you were doing. 
But it was hard for me to stop thinking of Mark as someone who'd been one of my best friends, you know, for five years. Um, so yeah, like it, he seemed to have acted entirely within character when I was interviewing him. Yeah. Well, there's a million things that I want to talk about regarding the transcripts of your recorded conversations with, with Mark, because the transcripts are doing a ton of work in this book. Um, but one of the things it does is juxtapose two very different aesthetics and tonal and syntactic experiences as a reader, as we encounter one transcript and then after your prose, and then after that, another transcript. Um, and a juxtaposition not only of written words and then spoken words, but also the juxtaposition of sections where you have total control of the words chosen by you with deliberation and sections where you only have partial control over the words because they're happening in real time and, um, and they're spoken in conversation with a person and you don't know what they're going to say. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit, especially since you have a background in poetry, any thoughts or pleasures or displeasures you have about placing the crafted and the uncrafted or the written and the oral up against each other, but then also about having and relinquishing control from, from your own words to words that are in dialogue and how that might echo against questions of power and consent. Yeah, I mean, it was so interesting for me transcribing the audio of my conversations with Mark, where, I mean, it was mortifying hearing myself be very accommodating right from the beginning. Like, oh, no, no, it's okay. Like, it's in the past. I'm I'm okay now. I have enough distance. And I'm immediately trying to put him at ease. And I really thought going into my conversations with him, I would be tougher. And... So, so I, I mean, there's a huge part of me that's embarrassed for how I responded to him, but then I thought, well, it's important to include that because that is how I responded. And of course there's this initial impulse, like, oh, that's like of, of me being overly accommodating. Maybe I could just like delete one more sentence where I'm saying like, I hope you understand. I hope this is helpful to you. Like all of like, maybe I could cut it back a little bit. Uh, but I wanted to include that repetitiveness of my trying to make him feel at ease. Cause I think that is, that can, it, it does feel like a particularly gendered behavior. I'm certainly, I know men who do this as, as well. Um, but I, yeah, I was just so mortified and it was interesting to me then to look at these passages and then reflect on them on the transcripts. And I also, I liked as a writer, I liked it from a craft perspective of giving the book some texture um, and thinking about like my background in poetry. I mean, I still read poetry regularly. I love it. And I, when I think of something as being poetic, I don't necessarily think of it being as needing to be poetic on the sentence level or the level of the line, but so much of it, it has to do with the way a poem or a work moves. And I think a lyric structure often operates by these associative leaps or putting very 
you know, like building a, a metaphor, putting two very unlike things alongside one another, and then the energy that emerges from that. So uh, figuring out the structure at first, usually a project doesn't feel entirely alive to me until I can see the shape. But as soon as Mark said yes, that he would agree to these conversations, I thought, okay, transcripts, like that is probably going to be how I structure the book. And and that was really, that was really helpful to me. But it was like having those breaks where I can like reflect on how I actually, what I actually said to him, and then talk with my friends about how he reacted and, and then share the transcripts with them. It was interesting to, to, I thought to like, to be able to have a little bit of hindsight on something that happened relatively recently. Mm-hmm. Well, it also, I think, is the main engine of tension or suspense in the book because you, when you're outside of the transcript, you're anticipating a conversation or processing a previous conversation and you're coming up with resolutions on how not to be and we're holding our breath to see whether when you re-enter this other realm, whether you will live up to your best image of yourself, let's say like you're, you come up and then on the other side, you're, you're debriefing and then coming up with a new, you know, hope of how the next one is going to go. Um, but it's, it's paradoxical, I think a little bit because on the one hand, I feel like what's so important about you not editing all those parts out that you found mortifying it's because it does show these gendered responses or what the person at the beginning called internalized misogyny. Um, but it also is the way you're all getting Mark to um, speak, essentially. I mean, I'm not saying you were doing that consciously, but you're establishing rapport. There is a, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to talk on the level of utility, but I do feel like if you'd been more directly confrontational, um, colder. I wonder if you would have arrived at the moment where he said, yeah, what I did was rape. Right. I mean, I, I think when I was having these conversations with him, I certainly, I mean, I knew I needed something from him and there was a concern. I thought, okay, telling him up front that I'm recording him, is that going to add another layer of performance on his part? I was very worried about like the different levels of performing a conversation. But as soon as I started talking with him, it's like I forgot everything like that. I was, it really was this genuine wanting to put him at ease and hearing his voice, like suddenly missing him. Um, by the time I interview him in person when I go to Ohio to, to meet with him, the city where he still lives, I was a little bit more confrontational about what had happened. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, like I, I needed something from him, but I don't think it was necessarily on my mind where I thought, okay, I'm going to have to play, I'm going to have to play dumb. Oh, I didn't, um, I definitely didn't get the impression oh, no, 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 you yeah. were calculating, but I did feel like it, I wondered if, if you didn't naturally have that 
response, whether it's gendered or not. And it seems like it is gendered, but you've talked, you talk about how you apologize to worms when you step on worms, I think like that you have a character, a character of, of great concern for the well being of uncomfort of others, including that non-human other, um, that if you didn't have that, maybe these conversations wouldn't have gone the places they, they, they did go. It was, that sure. was just a, something I was wondering. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think if I had been really confrontational, yeah, it, it wouldn't have, I think Mark, he told me he was expecting me to be angry. Well, he wasn't sure what position I would be coming from, he said, but I think he was expecting me to be a lot or to be angry, to express anger at him. And it was surprising for him that I didn't hate him or that I didn't see what had happened in these binary terms, but that I genuinely wanted to attempt to understand why did he, th- not that he, he actually could come up with an answer for it, um, but why did he think he did what he did? Right. Um, yeah. Well, you, you've talked before about how in your first book you felt stuck for a long time because you didn't yet have your narrator, which many people who aren't writers might think sounds strange, given that you're writing memoir, that what is this about finding a narrator when you're the person you're writing about? But you talked about not being able to find your quote-unquote narrative present, the I now and the I then that Virginia Woolf talks about in her unfinished memoir. Um, You didn't know your I now or when your I now turned into an I then. And it almost feels like in this book, the I then is not only or mainly you when you and Matt were friends 14 years ago, but that the I then is more you during the encounters with Mark in the transcripts. And the I now is you sorting through how they went and how they might go next time. So I don't know if you feel that's true, but either way, I was interested in your thoughts about the narrator in this book. Because your first book took 10 years to write. This book took, I think, eight months. Is that right? Eight months. Um, So considerably less. So I suspect you didn't have the same issues finding the I now and the I then this time. But do you feel like the the fact that you were, were writing it with far less time elapsing as you did, that that played a role in the sense also of the book being created and lived through in real time? Absolutely. I th- that's so insightful. Um, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. So thank you. That actually, that might actually help me with something I'm, I'm working on right now. Um, yeah. I mean, I think like writing memoir is very difficult because if we look at constructing characters, I mean, each of us is an accumulation of past selves. Uh, I like to believe that people change or capable of change. And so you're often dealing with a a lot of different I-thens. Or, you know, if you're writing about others, you're also thinking about them in the context of their past selves. With this book, I think it was a lot easier because because Mark said, yes, I could confine part of the the plot, part of like the making meaning of events, it was almost like making meaning of a conversation about the past events. So it actually allowed me to do that extra work of reconstructing a past self 
talking that within a past, which is the frame of the the conversation, the the transcripts. Um, yeah, I mean, the first book took me a long time to write. Partly, I was, you know, I was 18 years old. And it was a, I don't know, this deathbed promise to my dad, which I don't even think he heard me say, like, I promise I'll write a book for you. Um, so I mean, at 18, I didn't know how to write a book. Uh, so it, it did take me a long time. And I never thought I would write memoir. I mean, I thought of that as a genre back then that like, oh, politicians write memoir or celebrities. Um, I didn't think of that as a genre that was open to me. So I think once the glass eye, I still really struggled with because I was working on it over such a long period of time and working out like what genre is it? What is it even really about? What are the questions I'm exploring? It took me a long time because I think that I'd have the narrator, like the voice, and I'd get this stark tonal shift. So with the second book, it, it being confined to a period of eight months, it did make it easier to manage the voice. But also, I think the second book, it's closer to my... I I mean, I, I don't want to say that the first book is inauthentic to how I was in any way, but I, I feel like I got closer to showing my personality on the page with the second book, um, where I was more open to shifting tones and, uh, you know, bringing in more humor. Uh, I didn't want it to be just sad, 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 sad. Uh, I wanted moments of lightness. So I, yeah, I think having, doing it over a shorter time period was really helpful. And I mean, if I, if I were to write the book, if I were to return to the story and, uh, you know, in, in 10 years, it would be, it would just be a very different book and it might take me much longer to sort through. So I think having the conversations and having there be like a set time period, I mean, partly I, I ended it when I did for practical reasons, the school semester was starting and I just thought, oh, I can't. I don't think I can manage this and teach. Um, but that was that was really helpful to me. Before we leave the topic of transcripts, I, I want to talk about my favorite effect that they were having. And it's something you've already touched on a tiny bit. And it's the way that I feel like the transcripts become a node for making meaning in the book. Because we get your own analysis of yourself and of your previous encounters with Mark prior to a given transcript, and then the meaning-making that happens after an encounter. But it's particularly engaging and interesting because you involve a whole bunch of other people in the act of making meaning. So for one, your editor is a character in the book. So questions of how to make the book are part of the book, but also your editor is chiming in around a given encounter or anticipated encounter or the aftermath of an encounter but also other people involved are your husband, friends, a friend who you met in the psych ward, other writers. And these people, they, they point out things that you didn't notice about how you acted or Mark acted or differences in how they interpret something that was said versus you. And sometimes that's on the level of examination of language where they will point out something that to you sounded fine or even great. And the more you pressed into the language that Mark used, aided by blank, your editor, husband, friend, writer, 
colleague, um, becomes part of the book and part of your own analysis. And I guess I was just hoping you could talk about this way that you've invited the world really into the book as the book is being written. It's really great how you do this. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's helpful. I think it's something that can happen when you're deep in a project, at least it does for me, where suddenly you look around and everything is, has potential. And it's a great way where, you know, I, I tend to, I mean, I love writing. I, I, it's work, but it also, it, it gives me so much pleasure. And so sometimes it can be hard for me to leave my desk or my bed where I'm writing. And, uh, my partner, Chris, will suggest maybe we should go see people. And I, I'm able to, I was able to talk myself into going out and having fun thinking, hmm, maybe there will be something there that I can, that I can use. Um, so I did remain open to just like daily encounters. Like, you know, when my hairdresser asked me what I was writing about and suddenly I thought, oh, is it rude to, to tell her is that that's going to make, is that going to make her uncomfortable? Um, but I, I think it's something I, I probably got from Sheila Hetty, where it's just when I read her her fiction uh, or autofiction, when I, when I read her books, there is an openness to life as it unfolds. And I, I love that. I absolutely love that. And so I think um, that was a great influence on me. But certainly, yeah, I mean, if we think about the definition of plot being the meaning of events, then for me in memoir, reflection is the plot. The thinking is the plot because that's how you're making sense of the events. And I I liked the idea of this being a collective reflection where I could talk with my friends, talk with Chris, talk with my editor, Maisie, and my therapist and think through what the truth is of this situation was because when I would read the transcripts, I mean, initially I thought, Oh, how nice of Mark. He agreed to talk to me. Uh, and meanwhile, my friends were a lot tougher reading the transcripts. Like when Mark, um, he took photographs of an abandoned factory and sent them to me because he thought they would be useful to my writing because I don't know, it, it, they showed his interior state. And I thought, oh, thank you for the metaphors. That's so nice. And then my friends, <laughs> Jung and Molly, see that in the transcripts. And they're like, what? He sent you photographs to share his feelings? And they were so annoyed. <laughs> um, but I still, I think it's hard because, you know, as my friend Jung, who's a writer, you know, and, and Molly's a writer, but Jung had told me, you know, like, I, I care for you so much. So it's hard for me not to be, angry at him. And for me, it was hard to hold on to anger at times because I was thinking back to the friend that he had been. And he, he seemed so remorseful. And I, I don't know, like I wanted, there's a way in which I was very nostalgic for that, that friendship. So I was willing to look past a lot, but also as a writer, I'm, you know, thinking about what's useful, what's material, um, what can be transformed. So there is a way in which all of that is useful and I appreciate it. And I think if I didn't have the book, if I hadn't been writing the book, if I had just been reached out to Mark to talk about what had happened, there could be a way in which that would be really annoying to me, him sending me 
photographs. But as a writer, I think, oh, that's interesting. Now I have some because now I have some visual imagery because like having these conversations, it, there's, it's kind of, it's hard to, you know, include a lot of scene. And so I, I was grateful, but I think I was grateful as a writer, not as yeah. someone who's living this experience. So it was a way, there was a way in which the book got in the way of my processing the experience and how I thought and felt about it. Oh, that's interesting. I love something you said in a, in an interview that this phenomenon around analyzing the transcripts with others was also a way to bring the reader in as character, which is really how it felt to me. I felt like one of the many people who were invited on my own terms to make meaning from the transcripts, because partly the fact that no one is agreeing, no one is standing in the place. This is the correct way to look at the transcript. You're presenting a variety of sometimes opposing and sometimes agreeing opinions on various aspects of the uh, transcript. So I feel welcome to stay in rapport with you as my guide and narrator and disagree with you or worry along with one of your friends for, for how things have gone or things that have been missed. Like, so there's a very, I feel like it's very roomy for me to move around and, and, my position in relationship to you and your various friends and the transcript and Mark because of this. That's great. I mean, that's, yeah, I absolutely, I wanted that effect. Someone was telling me, I can't remember who was telling me that, yeah, there were moments she was so frustrated with me, but then pretty soon Jung or Molly or Leanne or Rebecca or Sarah or Nina would come along and say something that, you know, she, he, or they, the reader was, was thinking and were thinking. So I'm glad that that did serve that purpose. I think that that was something I, I hadn't really been at the time, wasn't thinking hyper strategically about, but then it became clear to me like, oh, a reader probably would be thinking this. So maybe it would be good to include this scene of a conversation with Jung and Molly, you know, because I had like a wealth of material because, you know, while I wrote the book quickly, I mean, it, it was constantly on my mind in those eight months. So, I mean, I think that can be the a big challenge in writing nonfiction because you're not, you know, making stuff up, you're pulling from reality. And if you're paying attention and you're being hyper observant, then there's a lot to choose from. So I would have to think strategically of, what would be useful to include? What might the reader be thinking at this moment? And that was something I, I started to think about more closely as as the book um, as the book progressed. I tried not to think too much about the reader. It was hard not to. Um, but I think every time I thought about the book being published, if I thought too much about it, it would freeze me because I would, yeah. you know, like you don't have control over it anymore. You can't. You can't defend it. Um, Were you recording your conversations? I was just thinking of Sheila Hetty's uh, How Should a Person Be, where she recorded conversations with her friends. Were you Were you recording those conversations too, or just with Mark? Just with Just with Mark. I think there might have been, but I asked per, one of my friends. I I might have mentioned. I think I said, "Hey, is it if okay?" if I record this, cause she had called to see, it was a friend who called to see how one of the conversations with Mark 
went and she's also a writer and she's like, oh yeah, of course. So, but for the most part, no, I just like took notes or wrote quickly after a conversation. And I did share the manuscript with them before it came out to make sure I didn't get anything wrong or if I presented them in a way that they felt was unfair. but the, all of them being writers, they just, you know, signed the form. And I was like, no, 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 please. Like, here are the pages where you appear. Could you just look like I care about our friendship? <laughs> uh, but every everyone was very You're all still open. friends. <laughs> yes, yes, we're all still friends. I, I was hoping maybe here we could hear the chapter called Finding Equivalencies. Finding a, yes, okay. Finding Equivalences. I called Mark and as soon as I heard his voice, I felt nostalgic for our friendship. I know, I just know that I was too nice again. I don't want to transcribe the call. I share the phone transcript of my first conversation with Mark, with Sarah. Do you notice how he's always finding equivalences for the two of you, she asks me. It reads like a really underhanded way of minimizing his actions. I don't know if I follow, I tell her. When he said that you were both drunk without mentioning that only one assaulted the other. And when you said you didn't think the friendship could survive, he said, I felt the same way. How could he possibly have felt the same way as you about anything in relation to the assault? Well, that was in regard to the friendship not surviving, I tell her. That makes sense that he would feel that way, that it couldn't survive. What about the part when he said, we were coming from very similar places. We were both incredibly depressed. Okay, you're right, I tell her. I hadn't noticed any of that. And I think about how the conversation ends with him saying, anything I can do. He's got the power, again. And I think this process needs unpacking at some point. This impulse that seems to rule over you in the conversation to move yourself out of the power position and how he is involved in that. You're so good, I tell her. I hadn't considered him taking power when he said that. I thought, oh, he's being really nice. On one level, he is, but there's the other level. If he is helping you, then he again has the power to give and withhold. You are the supplicant then. It is really, really, really baroque and convoluted and cool. I think there's something fascinating about how every time you talk about helping him, I just want to say, stop, stop, stop which I think is great that the reader has that experience, but eventually I want the memoirs to know at least as much as I do. At the risk of sounding sentimental, here's what I'm learning. This book isn't just about my friendship with Mark. It's about my friendships with other women. I wish I'd shared the first transcript with Sarah before calling Mark again. Um, And... Sarah was so helpful. In fact, she was somebody, when I shared the the manuscript with her afterwards, she's like, oh my God, was I really that bossy? I was like, no, (laughs) but it was so, it was, you weren't bossy at all. It was so helpful. Um, Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Jeannie Vanosko about her memoir, Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl. I want to switch to talking about you as a teacher of creative nonfiction which in most cases would mean putting aside the book as a topic for a while. But in this case, that's not true because you're a teacher in the book. So in the book, you aren't just contending with how to write the book and how to edit it, but you're also editing the work of your students in the book. 
as well. But before we talk about writing and, and teaching creative nonfiction, I just want to say that it is in these scenes with your students where I fully feel where I fully understand in a way that feels much more tangible than a series of statistics, just how prevalent rape and sexual abuse is. We see how your office hours often become sort of de facto counseling sessions, the gifts that you've collected in your office from grateful students. But all of this is the result of what happens in the classroom with these students, where when you provide an environment for students to write about difficult things in their lives, it produces an innumerable and seemingly never-ending number of essays about their experiences of being raped or assaulted. Um, so I guess I'd be interested in hearing about this in relationship to writing the book, because one of the things you discover is that your students often wonder, like you did, whether what happened to them was rape. And they often make excuses for their rapists, like like you do. Um, so in a way, as you edit them and you guide them, you are sort of editing and guiding yourself, it seems to me. That there's this, I don't know if it's meta uh, or not. I mean, we're still in the narrative, but it's very self It becomes interestingly self-reflexive. Um, but also somehow embodies the statistic or the, the phenomenon in a way in story that feels extremely powerful. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, that was, it's always challenging in thinking about writing about a student, right? Cause you have to be very aware of the, the power relationship. And so I would never write negatively about a student or give enough details that someone could identify them. But the one student who I, I do that with is, is Hannah. And I had reached out to Hannah's parents to get permission and make sure they were okay with my mentioning Hannah in the manuscript because she is a student was so important. She was on my mind. I mean, she's still on my mind, especially with the semester starting next week. But she was on my mind while I was writing this book because she was one of my students who I, you know, I was working with her the fall semester of 2017, so before I started writing this book, and she was writing about her rape and her first suicide attempt, which happened shortly after that rape. But she was assuring me while writing the work that she was okay and that she was fine. And I believed her. And I mean, I was in office hours with her, I mean, at, at least two or three times a week, every week. And I really developed this close relationship with her. And then over, uh, over winter break after that semester, I received news that she had killed herself. And it, I, it was interesting. I was, I was able to get really angry. It was in thinking about Hannah where I could access anger at Mark suddenly, where I would think about, just how I often wondered, like, does Hannah's rapist, does he know she's, she's dead? Cause she had transferred schools. She had been, after she was raped, she transferred out of her small liberal arts college to Towson where I teach. So she could be closer with family and, or closer to family. And, uh, I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I really thought that she was okay. And then I felt so dumb for thinking that I thought she was okay. 
And it's hard because every semester I'll have between, you know, 60 and 80 students and classes and they're all writing, you know, I'm teaching creative nonfiction primarily and a lot of them choose to write about really difficult subjects. And so I get to know them very quickly and it, it gets, it does, well, I'm so appreciative that they trust me with their stories, but I end, I end up entering into these really difficult moral quandaries of, you know, technically I'm a mandatory reporter. If a student so much as mentions they've been sexually assaulted at any point in time, apparently, even if it's before they came to the university, I am supposed to report it, whether the student wants me to or not. And I feel I have a lot of complicated feelings surrounding mandatory reporting. Um, and so it's just, it gets to be very difficult because students want to write about some of these subjects, but they also don't want to report them. They want to write about them in an artful way. And some universities separate creative writing from the title, not from needing to report cases to Title IX. Some don't. Um, but with my students, it's just heartbreaking how many rape essays I get every semester. And then since the book came out, um, so fall 2019, then spring 2020, I had some students who came to me in office hours saying they enrolled in my class because they want to write about their rapes and they read my book. And is that okay? And, um, and so it does get to be a lot because I need to be, I want to both be empathetic and understanding and respect that they're putting themselves out there. I want to also help them become better writers. Um, it's why I also, I just don't grade drafts. I don't grade anything in progress. And I tell the students, if you want to know what the hypothetical grade would be, were you to turn this in for your final essay, I will tell you, but I, you know, I don't like attaching grades. I wish I didn't have to attach grades to anything I, that I could just provide feedback. Um, but I, it, it does get to be, it just gets to be really d devastating because I, I get so close with these students and I'm, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's hard because they're at that age I was when Mark raped me and I, you know, and they're having the same questions I was having, like, is this rape? Is it sexual assault? And they're saying the same things I said, you know, they're like, well, I was drinking, um, he was drunk. Uh, he otherwise is like this really great person, or I don't want, like, I don't want my parents to find out. Um, they just, it's so complicated. And I, I don't know, it, it gets to be, it, it just, it is, it is difficult to take in so many stories of, of trauma. And it's not that I don't want my students to write about these subjects. It's just, I often need a breather. And it's the sort of work that I think a lot of um, uh, faculty who are um, either like or women or um, and of color, they end up doing this tremendous amount of emotional labor. Cause like I'll talk about, I was talking with a, a colleague about just how I had, it was like the 12th rape essay I had gotten one semester. And he had said, he's like, I've never had a student <laughs> write about rape for one of my nonfiction classes. But he was self-aware enough to say, he's like, I think they, you know, 
they just don't feel comfortable, understandably, writing about that subject. And 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 I think that becomes challenging too, because I think there are a lot of male faculty out there maybe who would be understanding and, and who could be helpful to students, but understandably some students might not want to turn in that sort of material to a male instructor. And so then the work does fall on the other faculty. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing myself now with classes starting next week. I have, I have, um, a couple of nonfiction classes and it's just, yeah, it, it, I, it's just, it's really depressing how, how prevalent it all is. Well, I want to ask you about teaching and, well, teaching and failure, because for the one hand, you've said in interviews that you would never tell a student to ask consent of a perpetrator to include them in one of their essays. So we get a dissonance between your book and your advice, but also maybe this isn't really about failure, but this is just very fascinating to me also is just being self-aware of your own things that are necessary guideposts for you, but not necessary, necessarily guideposts out in the world that you want to expose your, your students to um, ways of writing that you yourself wouldn't feel comfortable with. So for instance, um, you're not comfortable employing or you you prefer to be a stickler to the facts. You prefer to uh, use facts as a constraint. You don't want to bend chronology. You don't want to use composite characters. But composite characters are not that uncommon in creative nonfiction. Um, bending chronology certainly isn't. So I would love to hear both sides of this in terms of why those are your constraints, but then also maybe you could point to some works that you teach that are outside your comfort zone in terms of the, not that you're uncomfortable necessarily with those books, but you're uncomfortable with using those techniques in your books. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I often, every semester, I mean, I tend to change the readings up to some extent that there are some books that are feel, you know, permanently parked on my nonfiction syllabi. And uh, I like to assign books where I know the authors are using techniques that I myself wouldn't use because I don't want to end up teaching students where they all end up writing like hyper meta, you know, memoir works at the end of the semester. I, I want them to be able to find their own voice and style and, you know, and be exposed to the, the range of ways that one can approach creative nonfiction. Um, but I do like to assign works that use composite characters uh, that acknowledge bending chronology and uh, and then that and bring the authors to the class like usually they'll visit remotely and and talk with students and just be, so that students can find their own place in the in the discussion uh, a work that I think does it really beautifully is Jessica Heinemann's sounds like Titanic a memoir but she prefaces that book saying how she played with that she she prefaces it by saying that she uses composite characters. She, she's up front and saying all the stuff that she does. And it is a book that is getting at and considering this idea of, of truth and fact. Well, I mean, could you talk about, um, I mean, it sounds weird to say why is something being factual a constraint? Um, but 
that implies that there must be works of nonfiction where it isn't as much of a constraint as it is for you. Yeah. So I think fact, I mean, for me, I, I like to think of facts as formal constraints that probably because, uh, partly because of my background in study in journalism, but also because of the subject matters that I, the subject matter I explore. So with the first book writing about mental illness and psychosis, there is this question of what is real and what is not. Uh, and then with this book and, and also, sorry, with the first book writing about my dad, I just didn't want to fictionalize any aspect of his character, it seemed so important to me to be as close to the truth as I remembered it. Um, but then with this book, I think we're so used to women uh, not being believed when they come forward with their stories. So I really just, I didn't want anyone to be able to like poke holes in my, um, in my narrative. So it was really important to try and stay as closely to keep as much fidelity to facts as possible. But I'm trying to think of works that um, that aren't as close to the truth. I think Jessica Heinemann sound like, sounds like Titanic, where she prefaces it with this notice that she's using composite characters. Um, but there's an honesty there's an honesty in that. And so I think it's interesting for students. Some students don't even think of some nonfiction as using composite characters. Cause sometimes like in books, I think it might've happened with, um, I could be wrong, but I think this boy's life, um, I haven't read it in so long, um, by, Oh God, what's his name? Tobias Wolf. Tobias Wolf. Uh, I think it's in the copyright page, if I'm remembering correctly, where it mentions composite characters. It's not like, um, a large notice that that's what he was doing as, um, prefacing the, the book. So, I mean, the notorious one is John Degata. Um, I don't remember what the name of the book he wrote with his fact checker was, but it was based on the controversy that he was changing details of, I think of a suicide, but not of a, someone he knew he was writing, you know, nonfiction, but changing, you know, the color of what they wore or the day of the week for reasons that were aesthetic to him. Like, right. like where he would be like, Oh, that sounds better in the sentence to have it be a Thursday with a purple jacket, which um, was very problematic for a lot of people, including I think his, the family of the, um, of the person who killed themselves. Well, right. Because I think also with that book, I've only read, I have it. I think I've read the beginning of it and I, I found it irritating. Uh, but I was, I was interested in this argument he was putting forward, but I found that his deliberate changing of facts was was offensive where he was saying it was the only suicide that happened that day, if I'm remembering correctly, so that you're erasing the lives of other people. I can't remember how many other people killed themselves that day in, in Las Vegas, but just changing things for the sake of aesthetics, it's like, well, why not just write in a different genre? And I understand he was doing that. He was trying to be provocative to get these questions out there and to get people talking. But I just think if you're going to do something like that and you're going to potentially hurt others, like why would you 
I don't just, why would you do that? That is so, that is so hurtful. Um, I, yeah, I can't, I, I find that really irritating, but I, I have shared that story with students. I think years ago I included, um, in a course pack, like an excerpt from that book. And we had discussions about it. That gets into a level of portraying someone else's life, but just the, um, foregrounding of like the imaginative within one's own life. Like when I think of like canal scars, my struggle, which because it's so like obsessively self-referential and verbose, you know, you know, seven or eight volumes of a thousand pages and super minute detail. You, you, you buy into the illusion that all of that is stuff that he remembered, but in interviews, he's like, I didn't, I don't know if my mom was cutting a potato on that day or what the light looked like on that day or like a whole bunch of stuff. They're not lies. They're like sort of like these, these imagined things that fit with his own sense of self about the past that he's can't really place in time or be sure that they're connected to each other in the same day. Yeah. I mean, I find it really irritating when the point of a work where it's this idea, the whole point of it is to question truth and like, what is truth? What is a fact? I find that to actually that fine. If like, you're going to get, you're like 20 years old and you're going to get stoned and talk with your friends about it at 2 AM. Like, okay. But like to, to shape an entire book around that, where you're, where you risk hurting, actual people that frustrates me. Um, I haven't read all of Nausgaard's my struggle. I, uh, I think I read, I read the first volume some years ago, but it's interesting. I'm, I want to read his, um, what is his wife's name? She's a writer and she has a book coming out and she writes in a very different way, but it's, I think of her because, and I'm embarrassed that I, I can't remember her name. Um, but she, you know, asked him like, please stop writing about me. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. I just can't fathom doing something like that. Like at some point had Mark told me you can't use the transcripts. I don't know. I might, I'm, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, it's hard to yeah. say, but I, but you would have struggled over that. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about facts versus specificity. Because you have this article at LitHub called Five Great Nonfiction Books with Meta Narratives. And one of those books you choose is called Too Much and Not the Mood by Durga Chu Bose. And you include the following quote from it that you loved. Quote, and yet, despite claims, no writer hopes for ideas to take complete shape. Approximation is the mark. Many times writing that clinches lacks incandescence. The embers have cooled. A need for completeness can, off and on, squander cadence. Isn't it fun to read a sentence that races ahead of itself, that has the effect of stopping short, of dirt and cutaway rocks tumbling down the edge of a cliff, alerting you to the drop? Makes me think, if you love this, that perhaps... There's this a difference for you between a constraint of facts and an allegiance to specificity 
or maybe specificity is not even the right word, but um, of things taking complete shape. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of completion, it's partly why like writing this book was very frustrating to me where I, I couldn't, rem- it, it was frustrating to me like what I couldn't remember and that I was seeking Mark's um, I was checking my memories against Mark. Like, what did the basement where you carried me look like? Were the steps steep? Because as a writer, I want that. I want stuff. I sound like such a capitalist. I'm like, I want things in my writing. I, I want to be able to like deepen a scene with a lot of objects and sensory description. But if I can't remember it, I don't want to include it. And then there's a, um, it can feel so incomplete. It would be much easier if I could say like, what color the walls were or, you know, what the door looked like or just, but I don't want to include those things if I can't remember. And then as a writer, specifically a nonfiction writer, it becomes extremely challenging. And I think I'm, I don't know if it's like, I'm, I tend to be pretty trusting of others. And so if a writer tells me, like if, if a writer tells me they remember something a certain way, I will believe them if they say that, whereas I think I hold myself to a pretty high standard of not wanting to inadvertently lie. And I think I automatically assume that others are in that same position. And I think that's why I get so frustrated with the arguments put forth by John Degata or other writers that it's okay to mess with the facts. It's okay. Like it's, you know, the, the lyricism matters more. Um, I think that's why I, I get so, uh, frustrated that facts supposedly don't matter or that it's supposedly like a simplistic way of looking at nonfiction and it's an art and sometimes you have to add things for the sake of (laughs) deepening a scene. Right. Um, Yeah. Well, I want to return to the question that sort of hovers over the book, which is the question of what true accountability would look like. What a true reckoning with one's past actions would entail both in a general sense and with regards to you and Mark. So I was thinking of a, an essay in the New Yorker by Gia Tolentino called Gian Gomeshi, John Hockenberry and the laws of patriarchal physics, which is about celebrity sexual assaulters, not just Gomeshi and Hockenberry, but also Harvey Weinstein and Louis CK. And in it, she talks about how these men particularly ones who are eager to make their comebacks, who in their attempted comeback essays about their situations continue to frame themselves as victims whose lives have been ruined, or if not victims, certainly continuing to uphold the notion that the frame for the story is still that of the hero's journey for the man and his comeback. Um, She says the laws of patriarchal physics dictate that for every act of sexual assault or harassment, a man deserves an equal and opposite second chance. But what she says at the end seems more relevant to Mark. In all of the cases that I heard about, it seemed to me essential as a bare first step for the man in question to understand that his experience is not inherently more important than the experiences of women to acknowledge what he did and that it was wrong. This is the minimum precondition for the better world we're struggling toward. 
it is amazing, if not surprising, how many of the men in question are incapable of it. So on the one hand, Mark clearly leaps this quote-unquote threshold, I think. But on the other hand, as Gia acknowledges, this is absurdly low. This bar is absurdly low, even if none of these men that she's talking about are even getting, I mean, they're not even in the conversation of clearing the bar. Um, so I'm guessing a bare first step is not the same as true and just accountability. So I, I wanted to hear what your thoughts were on what that would look like for you in Mark's case and your thoughts more generally about restorative justice versus having him arrested, which is something your editor in the book wonders why you haven't done. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's such an insightful piece by her. And and it's interesting because I, I think Mark, you know, while I was working on the book, I thought, oh, how nice of him to agree to all of these conversations and to be as honest as possible. But the thing that I often held on to was he was still keeping it it's odd. Like there was this tension of like, he's keeping it a secret. Like his identity is not getting out there. And yet I didn't change any details. And I'm recently just recently starting to hear from people I went to high school with who they don't mention Mark's name in their emails to me, but have said, I know who you're talking about. Mm. Um, and so I don't know if this has yet reached his parents or not. But his big concern was he didn't want his family to know because I told him I'm not going to change details because for me, so often those details were very important. The fact that his parents were both teachers and um, like they were just like the fact that he had scoliosis, like that it seemed somewhat revealing or like um, that it gave some depth to his character into the situation. So I told him I wasn't going to change details, but that I would change his name. And he said that was fine. And at one point I said, you know, anyone who went to school with us though would, or who knew us then would probably be able to figure it out. And he said that was okay, but I don't think he fully thought it through, or maybe he was trying to appease me in that moment because I certainly, I haven't heard from him really since the book came out, I sent him a copy we texted um, about something related to publicity dealing with the book. And it, it it's so odd that part of me wanted to be like, but did you like the writing? Like, that's such a, like, a <laughs> weird thing to actually want him to like validate the writing. But I, that was actually my, that was on my mind. But it's not like he would necessarily have the greatest distance to be able to talk about the book in that way. Um but I, I think like he both, he, I do think he did the bare minimum because at a certain point he said this was actually helping him. And that made me, that annoyed me. Um, I think for true accountability in this situation would be for him to tell his family because he knows that's important to me. He, it's not me. This is not me asking him to post on social media or to tell complete strangers or, you know, to tell the people he works with. It's just that immediate group for me, his family, that would be meaningful. And I think would help toward actual change because, you know, as my mom had pointed out after, after I told her what the book was about, you know, she immediately wanted, she wanted revenge in a way that I didn't necessarily. And 
she wanted to send the book to his parents. And in true Midwestern passive aggressive fashion, she's like, I'll just send the book and say, look what Jeannie wrote. I thought you would find it interesting. You were always <sighs> curious about her writing. I was like, mom, please don't. Like, I, I mean, she you didn't can do, do what you want. What's that? She didn't do that. No, she did not do that. What's interesting is after she read the book, I asked her, I said, are you going to send the book to his parents? I said, you know, I would rather you not, but I'm not going to tell you what you can and cannot do. And she said, no, no, I think I would feel bad. And that, and that when she told me that, I started to worry. It was before the book came out. And I thought, oh, did I make him too sympathetic that my mom would have second thoughts? But she was concerned. And it was the same sort of concern I had. We're not wanting to upset his parents because we think of it as like, well, they weren't involved in this. But my mom made the point, well, his dad is a, a principal. He could talk with this might influence how he teaches young, like these young boys. Um, so I I think true accountability in this instance, like Mark acknowledged that what he did was wrong. He said he knew what he was doing was wrong while he was doing it and he did it anyway. He seemed pretty open to me, but that, but it maintained, it's still like private. And yet at the same time though, it gets complicated because it is public. It is a book that is out there that anyone conceivably could conceivably get a hold of including his parents and I think he assumed maybe his parents wouldn't hear about he said something that really annoyed me he's like well just stay off the bestseller list in the book clubs and (laughs) then and I that really bothered me um and then suddenly I thought now I do want it to sell a lot of copies um but he just his big concern was not he didn't want to he didn't want to um his parents to find out he felt a lot of shame surrounding it. And I don't know. That's why it annoyed me when he sent me a photograph of him and his mom in a hot air balloon. And, you know, yeah. And just to show me, he he mentioned like, oh, yeah, it's on my mom's bucket list. She's always wanted to go in a hot air balloon. And it kind of came out of nowhere. And that bothered me because at that point I was still preparing to tell my own mom what the book was about. Right. And it was at that moment I felt some like, oh, I want revenge. Um, yeah. But however short-lived actually that feeling was, though, because I think his participation can lead to some restorative justice because of what I've heard from readers. I think that's why it's so complicated, like, because this is both public and private. You know, like, Mark... Mark's identity will be known to anyone who we knew who reads it, but for everyone else, he's just Mark, you know? Um, so it's, it's complicated. I think he would, for me, he would have to talk with his family about what happened for it to be true, like to really see this through. Well, I don't want to fail to engage with a really amazing conversation you sent me between you and Amy Berkowitz and The Believer. I don't know if it's out yet or not. Is it, it? it comes out in, uh, it comes out, I don't know, I think October. Okay. Think. But one of the things she raises that seems really important is about how everyday and normal Mark is. She says, there's nothing remarkable about Mark. He seems like a regular guy. He could be anybody. And that's who's doing the bulk of the assaulting in our society unremarkable guys like Mark, guys who are basically nice, guys who you may well be friends with, 
and guys who, as writer and filmmaker Virginie Despont points out, may not think of what they did as rape. She says, men condemn rape and despise rapists. What they do is always something else. And Amy doesn't let Mark off the hook in this regard, even though he accepts the term rape. She talks about how late in the book, Mark brings up the topic of incels and how he doesn't understand them at all or their contempt for women. But a few pages later, Mark says he felt angst about being a virgin and converted this angst into his sexual assault with you. So Amy thinks Mark continues to be in denial about what toxic masculinity actually looks like, what sort of guy really is an example of toxic masculinity. And she wonders about the self-awareness of men who read your book in general, if they will see parts of themselves in Mark, or will they need to assert themselves as apart from him because he is a rapist and they aren't much like Mark continues to assert his distance from incels or sort of his cliched view of, of toxic men being men on who are bikers on loud motorcycles. So I guess I wanted you to talk a little bit about this because you've said, you know, many women who know men just like Mark, but many men point out just how terrible Mark is and that he resembles nobody they know. Yeah, that was so strange for me when I started doing interviews about the book or would, you know, start to engage in conversations about it where a lot of men would tell me that Mark seemed unrecognizable to them. Meanwhile, pretty much every woman I talked with about the book would tell me that they knew someone just like Mark. And yeah, I think there was this distancing that happened. And it even happened like after I finished writing the book, uh, it was around the time of the Kavanaugh hearings, I contacted Mark because I was interested in what his take was on them. And I didn't say why I was interested in his take. I assumed that would be obvious. And he wrote back and he sent me an email where he said, you know, all of the right progressive things. And when I pushed back and said, well, you know, why I'm interested is given our situation, our history, the fact that, you know, you sexually assaulted me and faced no repercussions for it for years and years and years. And he, he got really, it, it was clear in his email, he got angry where he's like, well, I made every effort to be honest with you, unlike Kavanaugh, who is clearly, and then proceeded to criticize Kavanaugh. And I was like, but you're not publicly testifying. This is still private. So I was so mad. And I remember calling my friend Sarah and she's like, what did you expect? I said, I don't know. I thought maybe he would have learned from like after doing all of this that he would be more insightful about it. And, and so that frustrated me that he still was, he was distancing himself. Suddenly he wasn't as bad as Kavanaugh. Or so the fact that even Mark would engage in that, that I got so upset about, but a lot of guys, yeah, I noticed wanted in talking about Mark, there were, it was very much like, he's so pathetic. He's so like just putting him down and turning him into a caricature, which is not what I wanted. Yeah. 
Well, this, I mean, this brings us to this, a variant of a phenomenon that seems true that, but also illogical at the same time, that almost all women, if they haven't been assaulted themselves, know other women who have been, but almost no men know of a man who has assaulted someone. And then also maybe that's connected to when you were touched by a teacher in high school, girls lined up to vouch for your reliability, but no boys did. Uh, I don't know, like something about this figure feels like untangling this feels like somehow it's a key to meaningful reckoning for men. I, I, um, and I wonder if that's partly what you're doing in showing us all the ways Mark is a nice guy. If you make Mark into a nice guy, and as Amy says, it's the nice guys in this regard, it's normal guys that are the rapists, not the guy in the alleyway, but more often than not, someone you know. Um, I don't know. Like I'm also thinking about a discussion I had with your book with Sophia Shalmyev, where she said that it's like you're doing, I'm going to paraphrase, and I may even get this wrong, but she, she said something like, you're doing the work men should be doing, but you're doing it on behalf of women. But what would it take to get the men? I mean, the absence of the fact that the men aren't even putting themselves in the conversation, I guess. If, if, if we can't recognize people in our lives doing things or recognize the ways people like Mark are sort of, um, there's iterations or reiterations of that just because of the, the way we've been raised in this society. I don't know how we're going to have anything like restorative justice. I don't even know if this is a question, <laughs> but I guess I wonder about that, about, um, or even the, the way you have the male teachers, they're not going to get the rape essays, probably for good reasons also. Um, you don't want to take the risk. But not getting the essays, the teacher's also not going to know the prevalence of of sexual assault in the same way that you do. It's interesting. That question my editor, Maisie, had posed to me early on where it was that idea, like, why is it that, you know, like she was talking about talking to her female friends and pretty much they all either had of her friends had either been sexually assaulted or knew someone and yet talking to men, they don't know anyone. And that's so it's like, are you not, are men not, I, I don't it, it is like this odd, like the math does not compute. Um, and I don't know if I don't understand. I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand how it could be. I guess it, it makes me think of, um, this isn't really an answer so much as just an observation. It makes me think of this guy I talked to. I, I quote him in the book, and he talks about when he was in college seeing a friend of his go up to a girl who was passed out and naked, and the guy, his friend just started fingering her. And he went over. He was like, cut it out. But he didn't talk about that guy. It was It was almost like this. He was mad about what had happened, but it wasn't acknowledging it as rape. And it was really interesting because this guy, though, he was open to me and telling me about how his brother had raped someone. 
it was really refreshing to hear a man talk about witnessing sexual assault, of having a family member who'd committed sexual assault, and being in that uncomfortable position of, you know, he's my brother, I still love him, but it's hard to think that he could do something like that. And this guy, when I was talking with him, he was saying even the woman he raped forgave his, the, the woman his brother raped forgave him, then they all went out golfing. Um, and it, I think it's all very complicated because there isn't a way in which, there isn't a standard way in which all rape victims or survivors respond or perpetrators act. But so often we are fed these images of how a traditional rape narrative goes. It's very unusual when I think, or it's unusual to see a rape narrative or read about one where the perpetrator is apologetic and reflective to a degree. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if Mark's friends, like we had, I do kind of wonder if guys in our friends circle will read the book. I'm not sure, but they knew that that happened that night, but none of us ever talked about it. And Mark had even said, He's like, yeah, I feel like we all entered into this unspoken agreement of let's just not talk about it and it'll go away. Mm. And I mean, we were like, I was 19, we were all 19 years old. Um, and, you know, not all of us were the most emotionally intelligent individuals. And so I, you know, I think my, my one friend, I'm trying to think of what I call him in the book. I can't remember. I changed his name. Um, but one of my friends, the immediate reaction upon finding out that something had happened was like, I'm going to go kick his ass. Like, I'm going to go use violence to, to fix this. Um, there was never a, I'm so sorry. How are you doing? Are you okay? The reaction was immediately revenge and, um, and then it was going to be violent. And then I had to stop this friend from going and beating up Mark it was a very weird position to be in. Um, but it's, I, yeah, I don't understand. I was talking with, with Chris about this. Like, I was like, do you know any guys who've raped someone? Like, do guys like, or do guys ever talk about it? I mean, do you, like, I don't understand how it could be that pretty much all of my female friends have either been raped or know someone who's been raped. And my guy friends, most of them have told me they don't know anyone who's committed rape. So I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, I, I mean, my one fear about the title things we didn't talk about when I was a girl is I kind of feel like this should be, I think you had one blurb of um, a man bookseller who says this should be required reading for men. And I know that like with the movie, little women, that men were not going to the movie. I don't know if it's because of the title, but um, I know your title used to, one provisional title was If He Says No. And I just wondered if it, things we didn't talk about when I was a girl was going to signal to <laughs> lesser right, evolved yeah. men that this isn't a book for them. When it really, I, in a yeah. weird way, I, I feel like, I'm not obviously not exclusively for men, but... Um, yeah, was well, something I also meant to say before too is actually I have heard from male readers who've told me they've committed rape. I received a lot of letters from prisoners convicted of rape. 
um, the department, the administrative assistant was probably very confused, like, why is Jeannie getting all of these letters stamped from a correctional facility? Because they were mailing these letters to my work address and like really long letters. And that was interesting. I was not necessarily expecting that, but I have heard from men both who've committed rape, some men who said they've never, um, They've, you know, apologized to their victim, but she doesn't want to talk to them. What should they do? Um, and, uh, but also men who, you know, have been sexually assaulted themselves. Um, or, and I've also heard from men who have um, part, uh, female partners who've been sexually assaulted and the, um, the impact that that trauma has had on their relationship and what, you know, asking for advice of like, what are the right things to say? And um, so it's interesting. I've been hearing from male readers. I would like to hear from, you know, more male readers, but it's because I want men to read the book. It was actually really, I found it was really nice when a prisoner wrote to me saying that he'd been passing the book along to other men in his I don't know if they called it a dorm or, or what, but um, in the other cells and they had been talking about it mm. and I was telling a friend about it and she's like, oh, that's so annoying. And I was like, well, no, I don't know. I don't, I, I actually, I think that's, that's nice. Yeah. I, I mean, I want them to talk about it because the one had told me he had never really considered the lasting harm that he had caused this person, this woman and he mentioned that he started committing sexual assault in the way that Mark did, and it accelerated from oh, there. Wow. And that was so. That must be really gratifying to have that sort of reflection, where the person yeah. sees themselves in the early stage, and also the possibility there will be people reading the book who are doing what Mark's doing or contemplating doing what's Mark's doing, and will end up doing what this prisoner was doing. Yeah. I mean, I am hopeful. The one reaction I had when that the prisoner told me that he, um, cause he was, he had committed, um, multiple rapes and he had, when he told me that he got started by doing what Mark did, by using his fingers and he told himself it wasn't rape when he did that, I, I couldn't help, but then I think it was me looking for another way to blame myself and thinking, cause I was getting asked the question, how do you know Mark won't do it again or hasn't done it again? And I don't. And then there is this expectation that's put upon rape victims or survivors that they are supposed that it's their job to get for, um, to hold the rapist accountable so that it doesn't happen to someone else. The implication being, if you don't, then you're to blame for, further rapes, which is a very messed up amount of, yeah. of work to put on someone. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if Mark has sexually assaulted anyone else. He told me he hasn't, that's not to say he's not lying, but, um, but that was getting the letters from prisoners was very meaningful, but I think it was also hard cause it, I can't, I couldn't help, but, you know, start thinking like, is Mark, a repeat offender as right. most offenders it seems statistically are. Yeah. Um, well, I want to, before we finish, I want to ask a question sort of on behalf of nonfiction writers. Um, 
because I've had a lot of memoirists on who have written about their abusers from Lacey M. Johnson and Melissa Fibos and Carmen Maria Machado and you, and everyone's had a different strategy on how much or how little to disguise identities. Um, and yours, you're very upfront as the, is the um, piece you read at the very beginning shows us you, you walk us through actually the process of coming up with a, a name for Mark, but surely there's a legal discussion happening behind the scenes that is informing some of these decisions. And what was gratifying about my conversation with Sophia Shalmyev is that she was totally forthcoming about how that all looked for her and the toll it took on her when her publisher made her call the book a memoir with all of its legal ramifications versus a book of autofiction, which is what she wanted to call it. So, I mean, I, I other writers I've had on couldn't be that candid or wouldn't be that candid as Sophia was. I'm she's, not sure. I love that. <laughs> she's I love, very candid. I love that conversation. <laughs> but, um, so I don't know if you can be, but I was wondering if you had anything you could share for other writers who want to write nonfiction that that may involve abuse or other things involving another person. Um, because I know Mark gave you a lot of freedom legally that wouldn't be the case for others. But nevertheless, I think any thoughts that you had about it, conversations you had with Tin House or otherwise that shaped the book because of the, the not because of art necessarily, but because of fear of, li of liability or, or other legal questions. Yeah. And it's so funny earlier today, I was actually just emailing with a writer friend who has a, a memoir that's going to be coming out and she is very frustrated with legal. She needs to go get documents to, to prove something. And, uh, I actually referred her to your conversation with Sophia. Um, I, Mark in signing that waiver, I was told by Tin House then that we were basically in the clear legally speaking, I was worried and, and I was surprised um, that no one followed up with me about the high school teacher. I mean, I have the police documents uh, showing what was reported and it wouldn't be hard for anyone to figure out his identity. Uh, and I was a little bit concerned that is there a, ch a chance he could sue? Um, but I the legal situation with this book was actually so I didn't, there was nothing. Okay. Um, and I was telling, and I don't know if like, had I gone with like a really big, like a corporate publisher, you know, that has, um, a big legal team, uh, would I have had to go through more of a legal mess? I have no idea. Um, but I was, telling Chris actually the other day, I was like, I wonder if my high school, cause I'm all of a sudden hearing from people from high school who I haven't talked to in, you know, more than a decade. I wonder if it's getting back to, it could get back to him. I mean, he's not at the same school, but still, uh, and, and Chris had said, well, I, I highly doubt he would come forward because think about how right. bad that would look and how that could absolutely destroy his family. I mean, he has this former, former teacher of mine. He has two daughters. Um, did you so hear I, from, 
any of the boys who didn't vouch for your reliability when they could have? What was the question? Did you hear from any of the boys who could have vouched for your reliability, like your mm-hmm. friends who were women did? No, I haven't heard from any guys I knew, which, and I, most, a lot of my friends in high school were guys. I haven't heard from any of them. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I've just, I've heard from women I went to school with. I did hear from one woman who I'm now remembering that I think her husband was at the party that night. He and I weren't super close friends, but, um, but I don't know if like he has read the book or, or not, but I haven't heard from, yeah, I haven't heard from any of the guys. So yeah, legally speaking, I didn't, it was pretty it was pretty easy. And Mark in signing that waiver, I mean, I, he didn't ask to see the manuscript. He sent it back to me like within minutes. Mm. Um, so it wasn't too bad. Well, I'm interested to hear what you do next or what you're doing next. So you wrote your first book over a decade. You wrote your second book in eight months. So I'm assuming your third book's coming out in six weeks. <laughs> right, because <laughs> you're getting quicker and quicker, right? Um, can you tell us what you're you're working on now? If or unless you have a thing about not talking about works in progress, um, no, no, I don't mind being asked. It's just I think um, what I I guess the risk is in talking about it. I can make it. I can maybe make it sound interesting. Like what I'm working on intellectually, I'm interested in it. I haven't yet figured out my way in. We usually have to have like a metaphor or an image pattern or the shape has to be somewhat clear to me. I'm interested in how storytelling influences mental health treatment. And I've been doing a lot of research and thinking about it, but I don't, I haven't generated a whole lot of writing about it. Um, I say that though. And then I look back at notebooks that are full with like fragments where I'm, you know, jotting out thoughts, but it hasn't come alive to me quite yet. Um, but that's what I'm, what I'm interested in this nature of, in this, um, in the nature of language. I've been reading a lot of books on narratology, which I never thought I would read all of these rhetoric books. Uh, but in terms of thinking about how people with mental illness tell their stories and how those stories are perceived by physicians and, and, um, people on the other side. And then also the slippage that happens. Like there are some people, there's somebody I knew we were, um, uh, friendly in the psych ward. She reached out to me not too long ago and she's now a mental health professional. She works on the other side. So I'm, I'm interested in it, but I haven't yet. I was going to say it still feels like homework, but I was someone who always loved homework. <laughs> I was like, don't, can't you give us more homework? Um, so it does, but it doesn't yet feel, uh, yeah, it doesn't yet feel alive to me. It still feels very theoretical. And I think part of that though, is if it's any reassurance to people out there working on their first books, I think the writing process is very much, um, a process of like sitting around and thinking a lot or me, like, I, I don't know. I, when I feel really stuck, I just open the refrigerator and I, I stare into it as if the answer is there. Um, so much of it is of the writing process is just sitting and 
thinking and reading. And, you know, it's not like you see in the movies or like Philip Glass music is playing in the background as somebody's writing furiously. It's, I don't know, it's like take going and getting a snack every like 20 minutes or um, at least for me, that's what the, the writing process looks like. So the refrigerator is key. The refrigerator is key. Yes. Um, but I, you know, my experience always like after writing this book, it was very odd where I was like, oh, I finished writing a book. Like it just didn't feel like I was writing while I was working on it. Um, it's just, I felt so at times sure, but for the most part, I just felt so immersed in the process that it was almost like I was surprised when I was done that I had generated anything at all. Um, that sounds magically amazing. Actually, (laughs) I'm lucky. I have a very encouraging, a very encouraging editor. And I will say for also anyone who's listening. Um, so my editor is Maisie Cochran and she did the glass eye and then also the second book and hopefully whatever I do next and I'll say a sign of a good editor is someone who asks the right questions, but it, but they're like questions that get you as a writer to think about, um, to think about it in a way that the writer, that the editor has in mind where like you answer the question and suddenly you think like you came up with the answer, but actually all along <laughs> the editor was kind of guiding you. And I think Maisie sometimes asks these like really, I mean, always her questions are amazing, but like she'll ask these questions that really help me see something um, come alive. And so I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful if I start talking with her a little bit about the next project that it'll come together. Well, thank you for being on Between the Covers today, Jeannie. Thank you so much for having me. We're talking today to Jeannie Finasco, the author of Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl, You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Jeannie Vanasco's work at genievanasco.com. Jeannie's adding two additions to the bonus archive, audio of her discussion of the opening paragraphs of one of her favorite books, Rebecca Godfrey's The Torn Skirt, and her hour-long craft talk video, How to Write Memorable Lines. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to learn about the various benefits of becoming a listener supporter. From joining conversations that shape the future of the show, to bonus audio from past guests, including Sheila Hetty, Sofia Shalmayev, Jenny Offal, Garth Greenwell, and Lydia Yuknovich, to becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving books months before the general public. All of this and more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or, if it's your preference to do a one-time contribution, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, 
and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.